This morning, we are continuing in our walk through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we have been in chapter 5. I had to go back and look at my notes. and uh, We started chapter 5 back in late May, early June. And we are now going to be completing this wonderful chapter. Um, and I actually, I've been praying about whether or not to take one more week at the end of chapter 5 and just focus on verse 48. I might do that next week, but we'll pray through that. But if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43. Let us stand together. These are the words of our Savior Jesus Christ as He teaches on the mount. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Oh, dear God, we stand in awe at the reading of your word. And you are speaking here to us through this account that Matthew has has recorded for us. But these are the words of your Son, Jesus Christ, directly to us this morning. And I pray, dear Father, that you would open our hearts and open our minds to receive the truth that you are speaking here. Lord, it is so easy for us to hold a grudge against those who harm us. It is so easy for us to see those who are different than us as enemies. And we can justify our hatred, we can justify are uh, are ignoring them. We can justify anything that we feel against someone who is different. And your son, Jesus Christ, teaches us very clearly the very opposite. Lord, this is the most difficult application of love that we could envision. And we fail at this always. And this is why, God, I pray right now you would teach us through your word, but you you would convict us where we have failed you, but you would also show us the right path here, the right way to live out your word. We can't do this on our own. We need your help. And so, God, I pray right now you would use this time for your glory, that you would change us, that you would love us, and that you would not see us as enemies. We pray, God, that this time would be for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I just can't think of any other passage more relevant to our day than this right here. This is one of the beauties of expository preaching is that we don't necessarily plan out topics. We follow God's Word. And it's amazing in my years of preaching that I see that no matter how much planning we do or whatever, it seems like when, when, when we look through God's Word consistently, God's Word is always timely despite our efforts. And this is one of these passages of Scripture that I think is more relevant today in our political climate in our social climate, I, I, in my lifetime, in my 52 years on this planet, I can't imagine and can't even remember a time that our, our 
culture and our society has been so divided. If someone does not think like me, I am justified in treating them as an enemy. I am justified in ignoring them, hating them. And, and, and I'm really honest with you, and this is, listen to the pastor's heart here. Evangelical Christians are the most guilty parties in this. Can we just be honest with ourselves? If someone does not think like us, if someone does not believe like us, we are justifying hating them in the name of the gospel. And oh, how God is not happy with that. I'm sorry to start off a sermon so glum, but we have to set the context here, don't we? You see, Matthew's gospel here in this passage, he now concludes this portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And here's the final teaching here in this chapter, how to love one's enemy as a neighbor. We, we, we put ourselves in, we, in categories now. We, we, we place people into different camps, politically, culturally, uh, theologically. You don't like me, so I hate you. You're not in my camp, so I can't associate with you. You're, you're not in my, uh, my group of like-minded kindred. And so I am going to hate you. It's so easy for us to follow into this, isn't it? How do we love an enemy as a neighbor? And Jesus here is making a very, very important teaching that we must listen to. Why do the citizens of the kingdom of heaven act this way? Because remember, beginning in chapter 5, this is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7, the greatest teaching of the gospel ever penned. The words of Jesus himself teaching us what it means to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. That's what this is about. And so citizens of the kingdom are to love a particular way. Why do the citizens of the kingdom of heaven love even their enemies? You ever ponder that? It's the same reason that the citizens of the kingdom are just like what we've read through all of chapter 5. If you want to take these last verses of chapter 5 and really look at it in the whole context here, beginning with the Beatitudes all the way through the end, citizens of the kingdom of heaven are salt of the earth. That's what we see in verse 13. The, kingdom, the citizens of the kingdom are, are light to the world. The citizens of the kingdom are righteous as God is righteous. They're honorable. They're peaceful. See, kingdom citizens inherit the kingdom. Because they, they comfort others. They're meek. They're satisfied as righteous. They are merciful. They're pure in heart. And they're peacemakers. That's what the attributes of the kingdom are. And if we're citizens of the kingdom, this is how we will portray the kingdom. Not as we are making ourselves citizens, it's, it's the outflow of being citizens. It's the consequence of being citizens of the kingdom. We are this way because God himself is. And Jesus Christ himself exhibits all of these attributes that he's talking about in chapter 5 so perfectly. And we look to him in awe and wonder, how Jesus can you love people who hate you so much? How can you be the peacemaker? How can you be so meek in the midst of, of anger and, and turmoil? How can you be this way? It's impossible for us to do this apart from Christ. It's impossible for us to live out these ethical 
attributes that we see in chapter 5. This is more than just being somebody and acting a certain way. It's, it's actually being a part of a kingdom that is so radically different than the world that the world stands in awe and they look at us and they say, how can you think this way? How can you be this way? And what do we do? We stand and we say, I, I'm not this way. It's Jesus Christ in me that is this way, period. And this last passage here of loving your enemy, there's no way this could happen apart from the love of Christ. And so what is Jesus doing here? When we look here at verse 43, he, of course, these last past, these last sermons that we've looked at, the latter part of chapter 5 is known as the you have heard that it was said passages. And Jesus is, is taking... Uh, aspects of the Mosaic law, but he's actually more specifically pointing to the distortion of God's law that the rabbinic tradition of the time had taken the Mosaic law to. They had taken God's intent and distorted it to such an evil purpose that Jesus is teaching here specifically what they tell you is the kingdom is not it. Let me tell you what it is. So the truth is that, actually, let's look here at verse 43. You have heard that it was said... (laughs) You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That the truth is that really nowhere in the Mosaic Law can anybody find God commanding us to hate our enemy. It is nowhere in the Mosaic Law. You're not going to find it. That part was added by the, by the rabbinic tradition. In truth, God's law actually demanded of the Jewish people that they are to show love not only to one's Jewish neighbor, but they were to also um, show love to those whom they had disagreements with, and to the Gentiles or the sojourners whom they would come into contact with daily. The Mosaic Law is very clear that God's people, the Jewish people, God's chosen people, were to show love even to their enemies. The rabbinic tradition had taken the Mosaic Law so far in distortion that people really weren't even understanding or aware of what the Mosaic Law said, and they were following the teachings of these religious leaders. And Jesus is making a very necessary correction here. You see, many passages in the Old Testament, in the Mosaic Law specifically, cite the command to love one's neighbor. And more specifically, uh, it, we can look at Leviticus chapter 19. So if you, if you wish to, turn with me to Leviticus 19. Now, let's see exactly what's happening. Actually, if you really wanted to put a finger at Leviticus 19 and a finger at Matthew chapter 5, and you read these two passages side by side, you're going to see a lot of comparisons and similarities. Much of Matthew chapter 5, the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of this comes from Leviticus 19. Most notably, look at Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 through 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That comes from Leviticus. That comes from the Mosaic law. Even in in, in Moses' law, God's people are commanded to love everyone. But God's people were also commanded to favor even their enemy. As God's chosen people, the Jewish people were the direct reflection of God in the world. God calls out the Jewish people and makes a nation out of them for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to show the nations of the world His glory 
And eventually the Savior would come from those people. Therefore, the Jewish people were to show God's love even to their enemies, just as God loved every human being ever born. We see here in Exodus chapter 23, you don't have to turn it if you want, but if you're taking notes, Exodus chapter 23, verses 4 to 5, is also an example of how the Jewish people were to love even their enemies. It says here in verses 4 and 5 of Exodus chapter 23, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Even in the Mosaic Law, God was telling the people, your enemies are not to be hated, that you are to actually show kindness and love toward them. Even in the Mosaic Law. Then if you drop down to Exodus chapter 23, verse 9, this is now uh, teachings and commands to love the, uh, the sojourner or the Gentile that is among you. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners yourself in the land of Egypt. Right? A sojourner, a Gentile, was somebody who was totally different than the Jewish people. Someone outside of their nation. Someone outside of their people group. And God said, even those people who sojourn among you, they are different than you. You could see them as your enemy, but you need to love them as I love you. They're wandering just like you used to wander in Egypt. They are outsiders just like you were outsiders once. Enslaved. See, what had occurred over the centuries in the rabbinic tradition since the time of the Mosaic Law, I like to call theological hair-splitting. The religious teachers of Jesus' day, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, the rabbinic tradition, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, they had split the hairs of theology and teaching in such a manner that it really distorted God's word. See, matter of fact, they had developed grand theses on how to develop just exactly, how would you define who is one's neighbor, right? They, they took this idea of a neighbor that God had taught about in the Mosaic Law and split the hairs so finely about that definition of who the neighbor was that they totally distorted the definition of neighbor. In other words, they were trying to justify treating a neighbor, an enemy, as, as somebody to ignore because, oh, they're really not our neighbor. See, they were splitting hairs. So these, in Matthew chapter 5, these you have heard that it was said passages are really illustrations that contrast this false pride and righteousness that the scribes and the Pharisees were living and actually teaching, okay? Because the scribes and the Pharisees had developed this false righteousness and what Jesus is doing here, he's, he's teaching the truth of godly righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48 here, Jesus actually contrasts this self-centered, humanistic love for the self with God's love. That's what he's doing. And, and, and in no other way can we see such a stark contrast between self-centered religious thinking and God's divine standards of love. I don't think that we could avoid how impactful this teaching is here. 
See, what Jesus is addressing is the truth of God's law and that every human being is our neighbor. That's what God originally intended as He gives the Mosaic law, as He gives His word through Moses and the prophets. He's teaching us all exactly what is true. He said, everyone is our neighbor. Now, they're going to be diff- we're going to have differences. We're going to have differences of theology. We're going to have differences of religion. We're going to have differences of culture. And some things we can agree on, a lot of things we cannot agree on. Yet, despite the fact that there are disagreements and actually false teachings versus true teachings, Jesus is saying we treat everyone as God would treat them. And he loves us. See, Jesus emphasizes this point really clearly. The neighbor is anyone in need who we might come across in our everyday life. And, and no, we see this so clearly in Luke chapter 10 in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We won't go there today. But clearly this is setting up the stage for the parable of the Good Samaritan teaching later. It is the bigger picture here. Who exactly is your neighbor? That was the theological hair split that the rabbinic teachings had distorted They justified hating their enemies because their enemies are not their neighbor, so it's okay for us to hate them. You see where this goes? How many of us do that now? How many of us are justifying our anger and our hatred towards someone because we don't see them as our neighbor, we see them as our enemy? And in our hearts, we justify our feelings of anger toward them. You see, the rabbinic tradition had added to the Mosaic law with such perversion that they really saw the... If you were a Gentile, you were clearly an enemy, period. If you were a Gentile, you were not our neighbor. You were done. And they saw these Gentiles as less than human, really to the point that that, that the reputation of the Jewish people by this time They saw the Jewish people really as haters of humanity rather than compassionate lovers of people. Think about this. God's chosen people, the Jewish people, had a reputation in the Roman Empire as haters of humanity rather than lovers of humanity because of this theological hair split. There is one common saying that the Pharisees and this was a, this had been found through, you know, archaeological digs over the years. Here's exactly a saying that is written down in a manual for the Pharisees, if you want to use that language. Here, this is a direct quote. This is from the Pharisees. If a Jew sees a Gentile fallen into the sea, let him by no means lift him out, for it is written, thou shalt not rise up against the blood of thy neighbor, but this man is not thy neighbor. That's a direct quote from a teaching from the Pharisees. They had taken God's word and added to it and distorted the truth of what God was teaching and expecting. Nowhere in Scripture does God say, hate thy neighbor or hate thy enemy. Nowhere. You're not going to find it. But the Pharisees added to it. So the basis for hating Gentiles here clearly was another distortion of God's law. And when God commanded their forefathers to... And here's where it kind of comes from. You can, you can almost, almost 
see where they're getting this from. Remember when God commanded Moses and Joshua to drive out the Canaanites in the promised land? You remember that? Right? Back in Joshua chapter 3, Exodus chapter 33, even in Deuteronomy 7, we see that God commands that you drive out the pagans from the promised land. That was the root of the justification for hating your enemy. They had taken God's command to purge out the promised land for his people and had expanded that so grandly to the point of they justified their hate for anyone who was not Jewish. In contrast here, Jesus, here in Matthew chapter 5, he makes five points on what it looks like to love one's neighbor. Right? Let's look here at verse 43 again. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? This idea of reward here that we see here in verse 46, is the idea of reward there is actually, what level of righteousness is this? Because reward is, the, is living righteously. It's not the prosperity gospel of your bank account and your Rolls Royce. It's the reward of righteousness. There's, there's five things here that Jesus is pointing out in verse 44. He's talking about loving your enemies and, um, and then also praying for them. And then in verse 45, being sons of the Father. And then in verses 46 and 47, love more than your fellow neighbors do. In other words, words, get into a competition for loving people. See if you could love more. And then lastly, in verse 48, be like your heavenly Father. See, these five points actually illustrate and emphasize how the kingdom citizens reflect God's righteousness and reflect His glory in the process. So, So while you and I could write off our enemies or neglect those who oppose us, God is not like that. Although it is clear by Old Testament prophets that God will judge the wicked. Remember that? That's a good word. The wicked. We need to bring that back. It is the hearts of the wicked that are toward God Himself that actually brings judgment. God does judge, but He's judging the attitude in the hearts of the wicked. They, They initiate the hatred toward God, and that's what He's judging. You see, God loves us, although we are His enemies. I want us to stop and ponder that for a second. Everyone in this room, even the purest infant that is here, we are born into sin. Can we agree with that doctrine? And as such, we, we, we come into this world as enemies of God. But God loves us anyway. And just as God loves His enemies, that's you and me, Christians are to do the same. We're to love our enemies too. In other words, we're reflecting God's glory, His, His love for us, in when we're loving those who are enemies. You see, what we can learn here from Jesus' teaching about neighbors and enemies is that just as God allows grace upon His enemies, that's you and me, we too can do the same. We can pour out grace on our enemies. The other thing, I want you to ponder this, this is a... a 
something that has come up before uh, in marriage counseling. Let's think about this. When married couples come to marriage counseling, oh, she hates me, she's against me, she opposes me, or he doesn't love me and he's against me, and, and, and the couple sees each other as enemies, and they use that to justify divorce and hating the other one forever. Don't you think this passage applies even in marriage counseling? Right? Jesus says, love your enemies. And if you see your spouse as your enemy, right there's marriage counseling, one-on-one. Amen? See where we're going? Got to love your enemies. But the idea here that, that Jesus is, po- is pointing out here, specifically in verses 45 and following, is this idea of grace. There are actually two distinct forms of grace that I want us to think this through, and we're, we'll close this out here, right? In order to understand what Jesus is teaching here, because we don't want to mistake that this grace that Jesus is talking about for our enemies is a universal salvation. Let's make sure we don't confuse this. There are two forms of grace that are attributes of God's grace. The one is called what we call common grace, and then there is saving grace. Two distinct attributes of grace. When we look at Genesis chapter 2, when sin entered creation through Adam and Eve and their fall in the garden, Adam and Eve themselves both became worthy of eternal punishment and separation from God. At the moment of the first sin, Adam and Eve are worthy at that moment of eternal damnation and separation from God. They're actually worthy of death. And that 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 sin of Adam and Eve is poured out on us. We inherit that automatically as descendants of Adam and Eve. See, when sin entered creation, there was a judgment and a penalty that should have been imparted. And there was penalty, but let's take a look here. Once born into sin... God's wrath, His justice, requires one thing. And that's eternal separation, being cut off from His presence and His goodness. And we suffer torment in hell and God's wrath for eternity. That's what we deserve. That's the idea of total depravity. We are born this way. We deserve eternal torment in hell, and we deserve God's wrath for eternity, yet... In God's grace, He delays that. I want you to ponder that for a minute. In God's grace, He delays that. Adam and Eve did not die at the moment they sinned. They deserved death at that moment. Yet in God's grace, He did not lay out the penalty at the moment they sinned. He delays it. In fact, they were granted grace. Now, again... They were granted not not saving grace at that moment. They They were actually granted common grace to continue living. You see, the full execution of death here was delayed as part of God's grace. And so Adam and Eve and all of the human descendants since then, we participate in what is called common grace, enjoying the countless blessings of still breathing. That's God's common grace poured out even upon the sinners, even upon those who reject the gospel. They are living, all of us, 100%, are living under what is called common grace. 
We get to live. We get to have joy. We get to prosper. And our death, the penalty of our sin, is delayed. That's common grace. And so common grace is the grace of God by which He gives people these blessings that are not part of salvation, but they're still allowed to continue. Common grace means something that is common to everybody. And it's not restricted just to the saved. It's it's not restricted just to the elect who are redeemed by the blood. Common grace goes over everybody. And that's what Jesus is talking about here in verses 44 and 45 of Matthew 5. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. That's what verse 45 is talking about, common grace. If God can pour out common grace this way, that the righteous and the unrighteous both receive the rising of the sun and the blessing of the rain, you too can pour out the same grace even to those who are enemies. Now, this doesn't mean that our sin is automatically just wiped clean and forgiven. That's different. That's salvation grace. The difference here between common grace and saving grace does not mean that God distributes two different types of grace. Rather, the differences show that God's grace is actually manifested in two distinct ways. Okay, The difference is in the results of the grace. Common grace results in living, although death is demanded. The results of saving grace comes from the source of Christ himself. The results of saving grace is that Christ's atoning work on the cross actually provides forgiveness and life eternal. Now, that's not for everybody. That's only for those who repent, that God calls to salvation, that he makes new. See, there's two different forms of grace here. But what Jesus is talking about here in loving our enemies we can clearly see is tied to the common grace. So how do we apply this teaching as God's people? If you're in this room today and you are a saved person, you are redeemed from your sins, and you walk with Christ daily, how do we apply what Jesus is teaching here? After all, we're God's enemies as sinners, yet we have other enemies who are against us, opposed to the gospel. How How do we live this? See, nowhere does Jesus imply that we're to overlook justice when we're offended. The very nature of being offended, when you've got an enemy, I mean, they're your enemy. It's not like you're imagining that. I mean, they're, they're coming against you. Nowhere does Jesus here say you just allow, you just lay down to be a doormat. Don't be passive. That's not what he's saying here. Because that's what we looked at at beginning in verse 38 last week with retaliation. When evil comes, judgment And justice is demanded. The question is, how do we play this out as God's people? Right? Just as God loves all of humanity, and His grace is common over all, we too love our enemies. Even though they deserve punishment, and even though they should pay us back for what they've done against us, they do owe that to us, yet... We as God's people, we love our enemies. And if necessary, we forgive them. Two stages. Now, we're going to unpack forgiveness a little bit later when we get to Matthew chapter 6. 
Okay? That's not for today. But we're going to look at the forgiveness part here in a few weeks. So how does this teaching to love your enemies apply now? How do we apply the truth of what Jesus is talking about here? Because verses 46 and 47, he's giving examples of how I mean, if you only love those who benefit you, what kind of love is that, right? For if you, verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? How many of us have fallen into that sin? I will only love you if you love me first. That's a hypothetical situation. If then. I will love you only if you love me. What kind of love is that? It goes even further. Do not even the tax collectors do that? Or if you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? So how many Christian teachings have said that we are justified in ignoring those who are not part of our little group? We don't even give them the time of day. Oh, how contrary that is to this. If someone, was, if someone is not redeemed in the blood, if someone is not a Christian, then they're clearly living a horrible, horrible existence by their own choosing. Are we to ignore them? Now, there's wisdom in how much you associate, but we don't ignore them and hate them. So Jesus is teaching here in this great sermon that he desires all of his disciples to possess the attributes of the Beatitudes. Remember those Beatitudes in verses 2 through through, through 11? Verses 2 through 11 have these attributes of the kingdom. We are to be lovers of people. We are to be peacemakers. We are to be meek and kind. So what type of love does Jesus call for us to be? You see, the first part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, these Beatitudes, and then the following examples in chapter 5 presents some bold standards for us. It's not that if we practice these moral standards that somehow we are saved or made worthy of the kingdom. It's the exact opposite. It's that we are not worthy of the kingdom, yet we are saved and and redeemed through the blood of Christ and made new. The results are what we're seeing in chapter 5. Although these these standards are, are not new, Law. I mean, Jesus is not initiating a new law. He is initiating a new covenant. He's showing that there is a new covenant coming onto the scene. And that covenant is sealed with his blood. But that doesn't toss away the Mosaic law at all. That's what we saw here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law of the prophets. He came to fulfill it and to show you the more pure expression of it. That's what he's doing here. See, all those these standards are not new law. They are part of a new covenant. We must obtain before God His mercy upon us. He, God will pour out His mercy upon us as He wishes. And such, we are then directed in how God wants us to grow after we experience His mercy and His grace. After we've experienced His forgiveness and His salvation. How might your life be different if God did not pour out His grace? How might your life be different if we were still enemies of God? I thank the Lord that He he loves even His enemies. Amen? Because that means me. Are we to do the same? Now, that's difficult. Can we all just say an amen and confess that that is hard, especially in our political and cultural climate? Folks, we have not really experienced Christian persecution 
as much of Christian history has revealed. Or even as many of our fellow brothers and sisters experience right now in many other parts of the world. And when I say that, I mean even in parts of the United States. I mean, our brothers and sisters in other parts of the United States. In California right now, it's still in very much a, a very contentious issue with the churches. Do we respond in anger and hatred? Or do we reflect the love of the gospel even in the midst of that? There's, still, there's room to stand firm for the truth while still loving those who hate us. Now that's the balancing act that we can't do on our own apart from the love of Christ. Amen? So I'm going to close with this question. Which enemy can you love today? I just saw grimaces on people's faces as I said that. Which enemy can we love today? I'm going to let the Holy Spirit just kind of settle in that moment. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. And lo, we are so grateful for Your Son. Lord, we are sinners saved by Your mercy and grace. And apart from that salvation, Lord, we would be lost. I thank You, Lord, for that grace. And I thank You, Lord, for that love. And I pray right now, Lord, that as the words of Your Son Jesus are soaking into our spirit, Lord, that You would show us who it is that we're sinning against by hating them. Who are we sinning against by seeing them as our enemies rather than our neighbor? Lord, we could be harboring animosity and anger toward people we don't even know or meet. The only thing that we're told is what we see in news media, that we should hate someone else. If our world, Father, is so wrapped up in that bubble of media and internet and news, I pray, God, that you would break us free from that bond and let us see the reality of your world as kingdom citizens should. I pray, God, that you would purge us of the trap of the lies of Satan to hate others. Because he, he can cause us to justify. We, can, we ourselves can justify our anger and our hate and totally go against your word. And so, God, I pray at this moment, all who are hearing these words would hear your voice and hear your love and your grace. And, Lord, I pray that your words, your gospel, would cause people to come to you for salvation and come to you for love and forgiveness. And then in turn, they would show the same to others. Lord, this time is for you. We thank you for this privilege to be in your presence. And Lord, I pray as we close this time of worship that our song to you would be received with, with joy. And I pray, God, that you would guide us and cause us to be your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.